Well, thanks for coming out. Uh, echo what Matthew said. It's a, it, it's a loud statement of your humility to get up early and come to a parenting seminar and uh, you know, saying, I, I need God's help parenting my kids. And we are, we are needy, aren't we, as, as parents? And uh, um, <laughs> Matthew said Paul David Tripp is a parenting expert, and he is, but I just want to make the disclaimer right away that I am not a parenting expert. Um, I've only seen one of my children so far into adulthood officially. I got an almost 20-year-old and I have a son who's going to be turning 18. I have two almost 15-year-olds. One of those is an adopted son. And then uh, I have my youngest who's going to be 10 in two days. And so I am, I am in the trenches with you. And, uh, and <coughs> not only am I not <coughs> a parenting expert, but uh, here's, an, here's another surprise. I'm also a sinner. And uh, so I am a pr profoundly imperfect parent. Um, I'd venture to say that I experienced more conviction going over my notes for this message than most of you will experience in the course of the message. I am just a bumbling, sinful dad who over and over again is amazed at the grace God showers on me and my family in the context of parenting. God's power, his, his grace for parenting flows to us through our weakness. So I'm happy to say I'm a weak, sinful, deficient parent because uh, um, I'm very aware of my need for grace and so thankful that God intends for my weaknesses and my deficiencies to be doorways into more grace and that, that's um, amazing. So um, very aware of my help my need for help right now uh, to preach this. So let's pray and then we'll dive into the material. Well, Father, together we, we do say this morning that um, we, are, we are weak and we are in need of grace. We're sinful and in need of grace. We're imperfect and in need of grace. And so from the get-go, we want to say, Thank you that you don't relate to us based on our sinfulness and on our imperfection. There's nothing in us to commend ourselves to you. And so our hearts right now spill over in gratitude that you relate to us through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. What, what grace that is. What grace that allows us right now to approach you confidently and ask for more grace. We can do that because Jesus made a way. And so we come boldly now by the blood of Jesus and ask for more grace. As we apply your word now to our parenting, open our eyes to see, open our hearts to receive all you have for us. Send us our great helper, the Holy Spirit, and illumine your word. Strengthen us, Holy Spirit. Humble us. We, we need you. So meet us in our need. Lord, change us. For the sake of our children, change us. And as a result, change them. Every child that's represented in this room, we pray you would save them. Trust you to accomplish that. We cannot accomplish that. But you are good and you are great and you are gracious. So we ask these things with confidence. And we ask these things for our good and the good of our children. We ask them for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
I'm going to read verses 14 and 15. This is a, a topical message, so it, it is a flyover message. We're mostly doing a flyover, not, not, we're not going to drop our altitude too much. Um, and we're going to be looking at a few texts this morning. But I want to I begin with this text and let it be a springboard into our topic this morning. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul wrote this to his young protege, Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul is reminding Timothy here of his spiritual history and of the uh, com- compelling effect, the example and instruction he received had on him. And the, the phrase at the end of verse 14 is interesting, knowing from whom you learned it. First of all, let's ask, what does it refer to? Well, the answer is at the end of verse 15. Here it is, salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is reminding Timothy of those from whom he learned the gospel. So let's ask, who taught Timothy the gospel? Now, to answer that question, we have to look back in the letter to something Paul already wrote in chapter 1, verse 5. Here it is. He says this to Timothy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now, that verse should be a major encouragement to single parents. I don't know if we have any single parents here this morning, but you all know single parents or parents with an unbelieving spouse. The gospel was passed along to Timothy by his mother. Now moms can take heart here. There's no mention of Timothy's dad because more than likely he was an unbelieving Gentile. He wasn't there to pass along the gospel. Mom did it. And, and the fruit that was born as a result of Timothy's life, Timothy's mom's investment in Timothy's life, and then his life is incalculable. Now I'm going to be talking mainly to married couples this morning and directing some of my teaching to dads in particular, but God's grace is sufficient for single parents. Now, I want to pull out of this text the goal of parenting. So what is the goal? What are we all about as parents? Well, here's the answer. The goal of parenting, of biblical parenting, is to do what Eunice did. The goal of parenting is to pass along a sincere faith. Sincere faith in what? Well, sincere faith in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, or like Paul says it in our text, salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Parenting is all about the demonstration and the declaration of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Parenting is all about the gospel. The power for parenting is derived from the gospel. All parenting is related to the gospel. And all parenting is for the purpose of passing along the gospel. In other words, our ultimate goal as parents is not temporal and earthly. Our goal is not to parent our kids into good behavior or to parent our kids into a good college, or to parent our kids into a good job, or to parent our kids into a good marriage. Those are all wonderful things, and we do those things as parents, but that's not our ultimate job. 
Our ultimate job as parents is eternal and heavenly. Our goal is to be like Eunice. She went after the heart of Timothy in order to pass along her faith in the gospel. Her goal was to point Timothy to the beauties and excellencies of Christ so that his heart was transformed and not merely his behavior. Our goal is not nice kids. Our goal is saved kids. Our job is to prepare our kids. I mean, think, think about this. It struck me again this morning. My job as a dad, DeBronte, Thaxton, Cosette, Yari, and Haddon, is to prepare them for the day of judgment when they stand before the holy God of the universe. That's my job. That's your job as parents. So right away, we come face to face with a tension that we, we must live with as Christian parents. Here it is. Two, two truths that we have to embrace as parents. First, God is absolutely sovereign over the salvation of our children. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty seven, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus does the choosing Jesus does the revealing. He's the sovereign one when it comes to whether or not faith in the gospel is passed along to our children. Now, here's another truth. We, as parents, are responsible to reach our children for Christ. So we feel the tension. Eunice passed along her faith in the gospel to Timothy. Our text says that Timothy learned it from her. And allowing that tension to remain is important. Any attempt to, to ease that tension and gain some slack is dangerous. And we might slip into a pacifism that ignores that God uses means to bring his children to himself. And very often that means is godly parents. Or we might drift into the anxiety-producing anxiety air that it all depends on me have to get it right truth is it doesn't our efforts as parents are effective only when god grants our children the gift of faith we have to keep that tension now the focus of the teaching this morning is on that second truth we the parents are responsible to reach our children with the glorious gospel of jesus christ recognizing like i said earlier that the power for parenting is derived from the gospel all parenting is related to the gospel, and parenting is for the purpose of passing along the gospel. Now, think about this. You might know the answer to this. How, how many direct verses are there in the New Testament related to parenting? I'm not including ours. I, the ones I, one I just read, that's in, indirect. How many direct texts are there related to parenting in the New Testament? You know the answer? There are exactly two. Here they are. They're parallel passages too. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3, 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So not only are there only two verses, they say basically the same thing. Now, when we go to the Old Testament, we find some more verses in Deuteronomy and Proverbs. We're going to go to both those places this morning, but hardly the amount we might expect. Now, why, why is that? I mean, that, that's the question that comes to my mind. Why is that? Why so few direct texts on parenting? Doesn't God care about parenting? 
But we know God cares about parenting. God created the family. So wh why so few direct texts on parenting in our Bibles? He here's the answer, I believe. It's because in the gospel, we have everything we need to become effective Christian parents. In the gospel, we have everything we need to become effective Christian parents, and there's lots of texts about the gospel in our Bible, aren't there? And they give us what we need to parent our children. Those gospel texts give us what we need because biblical parenting is all about giving our kids an authentic gospel example and scriptural gospel instruction for the sake of the salvation of their souls. That's what parenting is, first and foremost. It's not all it is, but that's mainly what it is. Biblical parenting is giving our kids an authentic gospel example and scriptural gospel instruction for the sake of the salvation of their souls. And the gospel gives us everything we need to be effective. The, the bad news that we are all sinners and that our sin alienates us from God and makes us God's enemies. The truth that God is just and his justice compels him to judge sin and his omnipotent wrath is the justice our sin deserves. The bad news about us and that truth about God met with the good news that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to save us from the bad news. The good news that Jesus left glory and humbled himself and became a man and lived a perfect life fulfilling the law on our behalf and died a sacrificial death that we deserve to pay the penalty for our sins on our behalf. The good news that on the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of the Father, poured out his Holy Spirit on his people and is making intercession for all that trust him. That gospel gives us what we need to be effective Christian parents. Do you believe that? Gives us what we need. So biblical parenting is giving our kids an authentic gospel example and scriptural gospel instruction for the sake of the salvation of their souls, or the passing along of the faith in the gospel like Eunice did for Timothy. It's all about the gospel. Now, the order of that sentence is intentional and important. Biblical parenting begins with gospel example. Our example must precede our instruction. And so I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking about example. Our example, our gospel example in front of our kids because gospel example, modeling, precedes teaching. Biblical instruction flows from our personal example. Biblical parenting rooted in the gospel begins with an authentic example. Now, notice I didn't say perfect example or we'd all be in trouble. The example will not be perfect, but it must be authentic. And this must be, our, I believe, our first principle of parenting. The most important thing we can do to raise children who follow Christ is not make sure they receive adequate discipline or get a good education or even read their Bibles. The most important thing we can do to raise children who follow Christ is lead our kids by example. All teaching of our children, all, all that they receive from us should be an explanation to them of what they already observe in us. In our lives, by our example. Listen to this quote from J.C. Ryle. He was a contemporary Charles Spurgeon, wrote a great little book called Duties of Parents. 
says, fathers and mothers, do not forget that children learn more by the eye than they do by the ear. What they see has a much stronger effect on their minds than what they are told. Take care then what you do before a child. Strive rather to be a living epistle of Christ, such as your family can read, and that plainly too. Think not your children will practice what they do not see you do. You are their model picture, and they will copy what you are. Children are very quick observers, very quick in seeing through some kinds of hypocrisy, very quick in finding out what you really think and feel, very quick in adopting all your ways and opinions. You will often find, as the Father is, so is the Son. That sentence about hypocrisy is unnerving, isn't it? Our our children are, are very good at seeing through our hypocrisy they they can sniff it out and they get better as they get older they're really good at it when they're teenagers they can sniff out any serious inconsistency between our proclamation and our practice between our instruction and our example so we need to stop and ask ourselves what what are our children observing what are they seeing with their eyes as they study our lives every single day What are we teaching our children by our lives, not just our words? How would our kids answer us if we asked them, what difference does the gospel make in how mommy and daddy live? And we need need to ask ourselves those questions. We need to ask our kids those questions because the consistency of our example confirms for our children the authenticity of the gospel. That's huge pronounced contradiction between what they what we say we believe and how we live will undermine the authority and the effectiveness of the gospel in our our kids it's sobering to consider the influence of a godly example and the effect of hypocrisy on our children but let's let it inspire us not just sober us let's let it inspire us to set a gospel example for our children and and to help inspire us i'm just going to ask and unpack four questions Uh, Four four questions to help us consider the gospel example that we live out before our kids. So let me let me give you the questions up front and then we're going to briefly consider each one. So first, do our children observe the transforming effect of the gospel in our lives? Second, do our children observe a gospel marriage? Third, do our children observe in us gospel humility? And then finally, Do our children receive from us gospel affection? So we're going to look at gospel effects, gospel marriage, gospel humility, and gospel affection. So first question again. Do our children observe in us the transforming effects of the gospel? Are there observable, undeniable evidences in our lives that the gospel has changed us and is changing us? Listen, our kids don't need to know that we love them most of all. Our kids need to know that we love God most of all. That's what they need to know. They need to know that the love he showed in sending his son to live and die in our place so that we could be forgiven, accounted righteous before God and live forever. They need to know that that expression of God's love for us has ignited such a love for God in our hearts that it affects everything we do. So let's look quickly at a very familiar Old Testament text. This is one of the parenting texts in the entire Bible. Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 7. This text 
drives home this point. Here's what it says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's the first sentence in a text that's going to go on about parenting. The first command to parents is love God. That is the best parenting technique there is. Love God. Love Him in front of your children. Love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That'll make a difference in the way we live, won't it? If we're loving God with all our heart, soul, and might, our kids will see it. They'll see it. Now, verse 6, And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. So this is about the way we live. This love affects us. It changes us. It causes us to live differently. And only after this love has affected us do we move on to verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So our example, our profound love for God that changes the way we live precedes our teaching according to that text. Parents who love the God of the gospel with their hearts and their souls and their minds are contagious. Our kids get passionate about what their parents are passionate about. I've got a 10-year-old boy who eats, sleeps, and drinks baseball. That's because he has me as his dad. He's passionate about what I'm passionate about. Have you ever asked your children, and some of you are going to have to wait till your kids are, are older, some of you can ask this afternoon, what is mom and dad most passionate about? What am I most committed to? I ask my kids that question regularly, and then I hold my breath and, and wait for the answer. Now, our, our kids are going to respond to that question the way we hope they will, only if they see the transforming effects of the gospel in our lives. So we have to ask ourselves, do, do my kids observe expressions of my affection for Jesus? For example, what do they see on Sunday morning when I gather with the church? And participate in worship in song? Do they see my love for God expressed in the way I worship? Do they observe in me a, a love and devotion for God's word? Do they see me reading it regularly? Do they see me seeking to obey the word of God? Do they see growth and godliness that's evidenced in my conviction, in my confession of sin, which we're going to talk about more in a minute? Do my kids observe in me a passion for the local church. I mean, gospel transformation means that we get more and more excited about what Jesus gets excited about, and he's excited about his bride. So gospel transformation means that Jesus' priorities become our priorities, and the church is a priority for Jesus. He died for her. He's committed to her. So do I make the church a priority for my family? Do I say to my kids when I put them to bed on Saturday night that tomorrow is the best day of the week? Because it's Sunday and we get to gather with God's people and worship Him because the gospel's true. Do my kids see in me a compassion for the lost? Do I talk about unbelieving friends and family and express my heartfelt desire that they get saved? Do I pray with my family for conversions? All that is evidence of gospel transformation in us that will be an example to our children. So do our children observe in us the transforming effects of the gospel? First question, this is just a flyover, so much more we can say. Here's the second question. Do 
our children observe a gospel marriage. So what's a gospel marriage? Well, gospel marriage is an Ephesians 5 marriage. You know the text, but let's review a little theology of marriage 101. Paul's addressing husbands and wives, beginning in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, and then in verse 32 he says this, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul is explaining that the mystery of marriage here, that's what it refers to. He's, He's revealing a great truth. He's revealing the great truth about marriage. Here it is. From before time began, God had marriage on his mind. From before he created the world, God was preparing a bride called the church for his son Jesus, the groom. Crucifixion and resurrection were needed to make the marriage happen, and that happened to secure the marriage for eternity. And God, the Apostle Paul tells us here, created the institution of human marriage to reflect the eternal union of Christ and his church. Here's the point Paul's making. God created human marriage to preach the gospel. That's the point of human marriage. The intimacy between uh, the intimacy of human marriage is intended by God to be a symbol of the profound intimacy between Jesus, the heavenly groom and his bride, the church, which is us. And so earlier in Ephesians 5, wives are told, it's verses 22 through 24, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, the body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In other words, in the marriage relationship, wives represent the church. And husbands get their instructions as well, verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, in the marriage relationship, the husband represents Christ. So our marriages are supposed to preach about Christ and his relationship to his bride, the church. And let's ask, to to whom do our marriages preach mainly? Well, if we have kids, our marriages mainly preach to our children. Our marriages tell our children about Christ and his bride. So we have to ask ourselves, what are our marriages telling them? Does my marriage tell my kids gospel truth or does it tell them a lie? The the message our marriage tells either compels or repels our kids. That's just the truth of it. Our marriages either attract them to the truth and beauty of Christ's love for his people or, or it sends them away, disillusioned and believing a lie. Which means, dads, one of the most important things you can do as a parent is to love your wife as Christ loves the church. It's the most important thing you can do as a parent. Love your wife as Christ loves the church, which means you serve her and tenderly lead her and sacrifice 
for her. It means you speak gently to her and always forgive her. It means you're quick to listen and slow to anger. It means you're committed exclusively to her and not the world. Moms, one of the most important things you can do as a parent is joyfully and respectfully submit to your husband the way that the church submits to Christ. Your husband is not Christ, but you're to trust Christ so much that you can incline your heart to follow and support your husband's leadership and not rebel against it or make it difficult for him to lead or contradict it or complain about it. Listen, marriage-centered, not child-centered parents set the best example of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ for their kids. Marriage-centered parents. Our children are watching our marriages. Every day they see them. They hear the fights. They hear the harsh words. They discern the attitudes, the grudges, the bitternesses. That's the lie. And it doesn't have to be like that. Our kids can experience the joy and security of watching their parents love each other in a way that preaches the gospel to them. Again, for for parents with with children who are old enough, ask your kids what they think about your marriage. I ask my kids on on occasion, does does mom and dad's marriage make you want to be married? Ask them, when, when you look at our marriage, do you see a picture of Christ loving his church in the way that daddy leads and loves mommy? And do you see a picture of the church in the way that mommy follows and supports daddy? Do our children observe a gospel marriage? Next question. Do our children observe in us gospel humility? Remember, the point we're making is that biblical parenting begins with personal example. And our question now is, do we set an example of gospel humility? Now, the opposite of humility, of course, is is pride. Pride is blind to its own faults and failings and sin. Pride makes it uh, possible to tell our children one thing and then do another. Blinds us to the contradictions within ourselves. Leads to the hypocrisy we talked about earlier. We see our children's sins and we see our spouse's sins, but we don't see the same sins in ourselves. We're really good with specks and don't see logs. We, we tell our children, here's, here's what I do regularly. I tell my children to talk kindly to their siblings in harsh tones. <laughs> right? We're, we're, we're uncorrectable in our pride. We're defensive. We're not willing to consider observations and rebukes. Proud parents are unapproachable. And that pride just closes our kids off to our instruction. It makes, makes hard hearts that gospel seeds can't penetrate. But the gospel makes us humble. We see ourselves as we really are when we come to the foot of the cross. Jesus died on that cross in our place. We deserve to be tortured to death, naked, while a crowd looked on and mocked. We deserve to be rejected by the Father. We deserved an eternity in hell, but we don't get what we deserve. We get better than we deserve. Every single moment of every single day, we get better than we deserve. And that's mercy and grace, and that's the message of the cross. And that message should humble us. We are sinners. And what that means is that as we attempt to give our kids an authentic gospel example, 
we will fail, which is okay. Our kids do not need perfect examples. They need humble examples. And our sin keeps us humble. And our humility makes us quick to admit our sins. Humble parents are quick to confess when they sin. Quick to confess to our spouse. Quick to confess to our kids. I'm always asking my kids for forgiveness. I feel like daily I'm asking my kids to forgive me. And I'm regularly asking them if I've sinned against them in any way that I haven't asked forgiveness for. And I ask them if they have any input and observations for me. And I've taken some criticism for doing that, like I'm leaving my authority behind by inviting input for my kids. I don't think, I don't think, there's, when I ask that question, they don't doubt my authority over them as their parent. But they see humility and they give me helpful input and observations. And th- those confessions and those questions and that, that openness to input wins our kids over. They see, yes, I'm imperfect. They know that about they know that about me. There's one thing they know about me. It's that I'm a sinner and I'm imperfect. But they also know that I'm serious about following Christ and pleasing him and about wanting to change. And my sin, then my sin against them is an opportunity to acknowledge before them over and over and over again that I need a savior and that I have a savior and that he forgives me. And that's attractive to our children. The gospel makes us humble. We see the horror of our sin that sent Christ to the cross, but we know that Christ went to that cross, and so our sin is paid for and forgiven and cast into the depths of the sea, which leads to a humble gratitude and a humble joy. And listen, humble, grateful, joyful parents are a great example of the beauty and glory of the gospel. Do our children observe gospel humility in us. And finally, our, our last question. Do our children receive from us gospel affection? The gospel is the measure of God's love. And so in the gospel, we see God's affection. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The gospel says to us, that God wants us near to him. It's amazing. And so he made a way for us to come near through the death of Jesus. God is the model parent. He's our father. And as our father, he's affectionate. Zephaniah 3.17 has to be, other than texts about the cross, the most awesome display of fatherly affection for us in the entire Bible. Here's what it says. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Wow. Because of Christ, because he died and brought us to him, God now sings loud songs of joy over us. That's affection. That's fatherly affection, affection made possible by the gospel. And God intends for us to set an authentic gospel example for our children by loving them with gospel affection. Even when they are, like we can sometimes be to our Heavenly Father, disagreeable. Expects us to have that gospel affection even when it requires, like it did for him, sacrifice. 
even when they, like we often do, make it really, really difficult. Sometimes it's just plain hard for men to show affection. But it is important, brothers, and it is powerful. God intends moms and dads to show gospel affection to their children. So I, I ask my kids regularly, encourage you to do the same. Are you aware of my love for you? Let me end by just giving you three ways that I attempt to show affection to my children so that they're aware of my love for them. Three ways that I seek to demonstrate gospel affection to my kids. First, I give them times of focused attention. Get alone with your children. I realize there's a lot of young parents here, but I would say start the habit young. Start it when they can't have a very engaging conversation. But get in the habit of giving quality, a quantity amount of alone time with your children. If you've got five kids like I do, this is not easy. You're going to have to schedule it like I do. And then you're going to have to protect those times like I do. I take my kids to, to breakfast. My two older boys, I do, I'm, I'm with them once every other week. Intentional discipleship. The other three I rotate through breakfast alone on Friday. It used to be Friday mornings. It gets more challenging with their schedule. We have to, at the beginning of the week, figure out how it's going to work. But during those times, I'm intentional. I ask questions, the questions I've been feeding you in this message. I try to get my finger on their spiritual pulse. How are devotions? What's God saying on Sunday morning? How are you being affected when you gather with the church? And we have fun. Let the kids take the conversation where they want it to go for part of the time. And, and it's not just about those scheduled times. And you who have teenagers, preteens know um, it's definitely not about those scheduled times. We need to be ready to give our kids focused attention whenever they need it. And preteens and teenagers almost always need it when it's inconvenient or right when I'm ready to unwind. But love sacrifices. That's gospel love. So give your kids... In, I just thought of this. My, my um, how to get through this. My 14-year-old son is adopted from Russia, and he's been a unique challenge. All the challenges that go with adoption, being different than our kids, and bringing him along in the gospel was a unique challenge. He was baptized three Sundays ago, and he got converted as a direct result of my discipleship time with him. We read the book, What is the Gospel? by Greg Gilbert, out loud to one another. And it clicked. The gospel that I've been preaching to him ever since he's been here clicked in that moment. And on a bike ride last summer, he cried out to God to save him. But it was a direct result of scheduled, focused time with him, understanding what he, what he needed more than anything was to really get the gospel. And he really got the gospel. And it saved him. I don't know what better commercial I can give for spending time alone, one-on-one engaged with our children. Here's a second way I show affection to my children. uh, Through appropriate physical contact. Hug them. Kiss the younger ones. Sometimes still the older ones on the cheek. Pull them near when we're watching TV. Let them climb on my lap even when it's uncomfortable. Hold hands with my girls. Wrestle with my boys. Sometimes, this is something I learned from my wife, showing this kind of affection um, in a 
difficult discipline situation might just be the best thing to do. My oldest son, Thaxton, was a challenge during his toddler years and adolescent years and, and, and can be, he knows, sometimes now. And I would watch my wife, and so I started to do this. Sometimes when she's, she's heart was hard, wasn't getting through, that was done with the words, and she would hold it. And he broke every single time. Now that he's almost 18, if, I, if he does something that offends me, I'm not concerned in that moment that he's offending God or sinning against God. It's about me and my convenience, and I want peace now. And I go after him, his heart is immediately hard. But if I catch myself, and I pray, and I tell him I love him, and I'm concerned right now mainly about his relationship with the Lord, he breaks every time, every time. It's just gospel affection. So that display of gospel affection, e- even, even when our kids are sinning, soften the heart. That's a gospel example. That's what God does to us. There's a third way I show affection to my children is by encouragement. Or as we say around our church, probably say it around here, just pointing out evidences of God's grace. We discipline as parents. It's important. The Bible tells us to, but the accent in our homes should be on encouragement. So I, I ask my kids and I ask my wife regularly, are you more aware of my correction or my encouragement? We can't take God's grace for granted. When, when we see it displayed in our children's lives, we must highlight it. Words are powerful things. Proverbs 10.11 says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Words of affirmation and grace are powerful. They give life. They, they build up. They extend love. They inspire. They impart confidence. Now, I'm not perfect at this. My kids, my kids have told me. They know this is my practice. They know what I do. They, they know I ask that question. And I've had them tell me, you know what? I'm not waiting for you to ask me. I'm going to tell you I'm more aware of your correction than your encouragement. And I need you to point out some evidences of God's grace in me. And humble parents will see God at work in their kids and draw attention to it. So biblical parenting begins with an authentic gospel example. And God will give us the grace we need to be that example. That, that's everything we need is derived from the gospel. Jesus purchased all the great, he purchased the new covenant, which says that God puts his, a new heart in us and the spirit in us and causes us, Isaiah 36, or uh, Ezekiel 36, to walk in his statutes. He gives us the grace to obey his commands. Everything he expects of us as parents, he gives us the grace to do, which is uh, amazing. He's for us in this. He uses the imperfect efforts of gospel-centered parents to accomplish his work in our children's hearts. And isn't that good news? What a privilege. What a responsibility. Let's pray. Well, Father, give us the grace we need. Your grace often comes to us in the form of conviction, so give the gift of conviction where necessary and appropriate. No condemnation, because there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Give the gift of repentance where necessary, and give us all grace for change. We all need to grow in these things. Don't let any parent here be, be paralyzed by condemnation, because the gospel's true, so there is no condemnation. So pour out your grace and make us authentic gospel examples to our children. 
And let that example bear fruit in the lives of our children. Real, enduring gospel fruit. That's what it's all about, Lord. That's why we're here. So do it, we ask, for our sake, for the sake of our kids, for the sake of the glory of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, <coughs> I trust you guys found that rich and helpful. <coughs> I got down a little bit early, which is fine because if Rick's okay with it, um, I kind of want to open things up for just a Q&A. Sure. As long as they understand it's questions and attempts, <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> answers. Q&A, questions and attempts. What was the name of the book you mentioned your son? Which 18-year-old was reading? Yeah, um, it was, I, I went through it with my 14-year-old. Um, what is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert? Excellent little book. Boy, to use that with your, your kids just to, to go deeper. I mean, this is a kid who's grown up hearing it, and God, you, I, I, I'm just sitting across reading chapters, and Watching lights go on, it was amazing. I love that book. If like fa- family worship times and stuff, we've we've never we've never been successful at family worship, and I just take great comfort that I'm not commanded in the Bible to have family worship. I'm commanded, like I am, to talk about these things when we go in and out. So w- one thing that I did that that I I think God used and was effective with, with each of the kids um, as they got to an age where they were understanding the Bible, I would have devotions with them. and I'd rotate having devotions with them in the morning. So they'd read their passage out loud. I'd help them ask questions. We'd pray together and just more taught them how to have personal devotions by example and doing that. We tried, fa- I mean, we've done different things for w- with family worship through the years and when they were younger. So we did, it just never, you know, I've got, I've got friends who it is after dinner, every night the Bible comes, it is just, like clockwork, it's it's not been that way in our house, but but we've done other things that have been been helpful. And I, I just think my you know my kids talk now that they're older. They they recognize that they've grown up, and just I think training our kids just to see God in it all. So you're always bringing the gospel to bear. You're always bringing the you're watching a movie, and you're not just letting the worldview follow. Your is that true? What, what was just said now, what do we, you know, those, those training your kids to just always bring God into the picture is important. A good, thank you guys for your t-shirt, a good resource for folks <coughs> if you do feel like we want to make, because I know for my family, like my mom was very insistent, like ev- at the end of every meal, I mean, if we had breakfast in the morning, it ended with reading a devotion, and the end of every meal at night, dinner time, open the Bible, but there were also times where it was like, you know, she's just going through whatever we were using, and we'd be sitting there, 
in the middle of some text in the Old Testament, and it was just like, you know, we were glazed over. What does this mean? My parents were just, I don't know. If you feel a conviction, hey, we want to do, you know, I think what Rick has done and what he's practiced is, is absolutely helpful. But if you're feeling, hey, we want to try and make those evening meal times a point or some other time, there are some great resources, especially um, Marty Mikowski's books. He's got a couple devotionals. One is called Long Story Short, and the other is called Old Story New. And the whole purpose of them is basically, and it's actually, he has a children's storybook Bible as well, a children's Bible. And the point of those is that they're little devotionals that are meant to be 10-minute snippets to sit down with stories from the Old Testament and the New Testament and to help you to unpack the meaning of the gospel in those stories for your kids. So if you wanted to do something like that, those are a couple of good resources that you can use to help bridge some of those texts where you're, you know, you're sitting there in Song of Songs thinking, what in the world? Yeah, I, I think um, the most important question I asked in those a- taking kids, taking them out at that age. Um, the the main question I asked when the kids were, were that age is, "What is the gospel?" Just always ask them, "What is the what is the gospel?" In your words, "What is the gospel?" And just get them used to, say, and then not maybe not ask it and let it go a little longer and see if they remember they're thinking about it. Um, but I, I even at those I- toddler ages, especially with my almost 10 year old I mean I, I could ask him how am I doing as a dad got any input and he would have I mean he would well he yelled at Thaxton the other day <laughs> you know he I mean he just he, well there, there's my you know my three four year old recognizing I spoke harshly to my my older son I apologized to my older son but I hadn't apologized to everybody else who heard it so yeah it's just um it, but you know low expectations of the conversation and how it's going to go and and uh and but just ask some of those important important questions um but yeah what is the gospel what is the gospel rehearsing the gospel regularly is that is that getting to what you were asking I know, um, yeah, a lot of good ones have come since my, my kids have gotten older, but um, I, I know th- the one that um, that hadn't enjoyed was the Sally Lloyd-Jones. She's a storybook Bible. That That's, yeah, I've, yeah, reading that with him, I was blown away. That, w- that would be a favorite. I find that one helpful. Like, I'll just yeah. be like, <laughs> I've never seen that playing on. Of course, every time we pull it up, I'm like, He's starting to like many colors <laughs> as well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks for your transparency with sharing a lot of what you're sharing, and it's very helpful. Oh, you're welcome. You open up and sharing about sharing the book. Uh, I have five kids as well, ranging from 22 all the way down to seven. And I, I just how do you deal with the challenges of that one-on-one time for scheduling and the little practical ways? Uh, Yeah, we, we, I mean, it used to be, you know, a certain day of the week for the breakfast, certain day of the week for the boys, and it, it can't be anymore with the schedules getting more complex. So we have to 
at the beginning of the week, okay, it's Daxton's turn with me for intentional discipleship. What's your schedule look like? And got to get something, you know. It's, it used to be an, an evening with the boys. Now it's sometimes it's got to be a morning. It's you know, got to be a, a breakfast. or It's, it's just going with, with the schedule. Flexibility. Flexibility. But doing it and then getting it on the calendar and protecting it. You know, like there, there was a season where um, the older boys didn't have as much going on. And uh, as I started to do more intentional stuff, with and by intentional stuff, basically what we've done is just read books out loud to one another. We did go to the coffee shop and read books and talk about it. And but um, you know, you st- Wednesday night, that's what I did Wednesday, and I could protect that. And and uh, um, it's just not that way anymore. You, I mean, it life gets complex, and schedules get complex, and pastor's schedule is complex, and you just have to work at it. Well, I think I think you answered the question. It's just by looking at the calendar regularly and saying, "Are are godly priorities evident in my calendar?" It's the same thing you do with your checkbook. <laughs> Look at your che- are godly priorities evidence in the way I'm spending my money? But it's uh, is is church a priority? Is the discipleship of my kids a priority? Is care for my wife? I mean, more more important than these times with with my kids is date night with my wife. Everybody in the church knows. I won't take an appointment Thursday night. I'm absolutely, totally unavailable Thursday night because that's Dwayne's time. That's that's our one time a week where we get away. It's just us, and and uh, um, that evening's hers. So, yeah, I, I think it's just regularly having to, because because things will crowd. Extracurricular activities will crowd. Split, and there's pressure in our society that your kids have to be in this and this. And I, I, you know, I just, we just chose to walk against what society said, and our kids weren't in everything. We chose some favorite things, and that's what they, they did, you know. My, my older kids, it all ended up being theater-related and artsy-type stuff. With my youngest, it's, he's, my, finally have a jock. <laughs> and, uh, but he, you know, he's not in every sport. He didn't, you know, he's not, it's, it's just, okay, baseball's your focus. We're going to stick with baseball, and Daddy can come to some games, can't come to all games, but you, you know it's just it, it's just asking those those questions and and I and I think fighting that impulse because there is it, we live in a child-centered society and everything's our kid and the kids have to be this way and be doing this stuff and and uh, um, and maybe it's not that pressured in Minnesota. We just had a friend who moved back to the Midwest, back to Minnesota from Washington D.C. And one of the things he told me was he just feels so much less pressure to have his kids in everything than he did while living in D.C. So cultures are different in in different places, but it's there. It's it's everywhere. We have to be aware of it. And uh, and, you know, like I said, what ask what what are Jesus priorities? Because those should be mine. And uh, and looking at our calendar, asking that question.
Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm having to be more involved in that. I I think it's just where technology has gone in the difference between my 20-year-old, my 18-year-old. Um I I never had to put limits on their media. They were readers. Um you know, we sometimes if you put the book down it's time for bed. Um you know, my my 18-year-old enjoys video games, but after after 45 minutes he gets a headache and he turns I just never but the other three I've I've had to put strict limits on you know time limits on what media per day what has to get done before they can go to media. I mean I've I've walked into a room and seen my almost ten year old watching an iPad, something on the and playing a game on another iPad. <laughs> you know it's it's just unbelievable what the, <laughs> the, the, what's available to our kids today. So yeah. Keep keeping on it has has become really important with the younger ones. Yeah, they get they get um, the, the two boys get um, one hour each during school on sc school days of uh, they they can play video games for an hour and they can watch media for an hour, watch s something um, <coughs> pre-approved, um, but that that's that's it. So, and I, I don't know how that, I mean, I don't know if that's liberal or strict compared to others, but it's what, it's what feel, I, I loosen up on the weekends and, uh, and I don't, don't count, if we watch a family movie and they've already spent their hour with media, I don't count that, you know. You can't watch that's right. <laughs> Sorry. Only watch 10 minutes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 10 minutes left. 10 minutes of Star Wars. So, is that what you were, is that what you were getting at? Oh yeah, it's yeah. There's a real temptation in, in those young age to, to discipline in anger. We shouldn't discipline in anger. I, I, and I, I'm saying that to myself because I still do it. You know, the, in that, like you said, you're tired. Um, so you, what your kids are doing are an inconvenience to you. You want peace of it. There's just all, all kinds of idols of the heart being exposed in those moments. But in my best parenting moments. I'll back away, and and what I what I ask God in those moments is that I would be more concerned about the state of their soul than my convenience. I, that that's if if we go in with that attitude, discipline, more concerned that they're sinning against God than that they're inconveniencing me. Those are good moments, and sometimes that does take even when the kids are young, it, as they get older, even more so. I mean, there there have been times where I've heard. Stuff going on, and know I've got to go intervene now. And I'm in my room. My wife will come in and say, "What? You know, it's like from The Incredibles. It's time to engage, Bob." <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like, "I'm not there yet. 
I'm not ready to engage. So uh, I've got to do my get my heart right with the Lord and then engage. So is that is that what you were getting at? Yeah, five, four, five-year-olds can understand. You know, daddy's not in a place right now. To get, but we're coming back to that, and walk away. You know, you, you get two, three-year-olds. That immediate discipline is important, so they get the point. Because they're not going to remember context or anything later. But uh, but yeah, get not disciplining in anger, concern. Because then you know, then those moments are, and I I miss those moments because I'm past. I'm past the time where you take them in the room and you, you give them a spanking and you tell them the gospel one more time and you pray with them and you're done in five minutes. <laughs> with teenagers, it's like a five-day affair sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it's so different. But what, what do we do with the teenagers? Like, they get a hard heart, they're not going to eat <coughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, if it, I mean, if it's something that needs to be dealt with, uh, and it, it it's it's got to be put off, we've put it off before, and uh, and then you go to bed praying really hard and for a soft heart the next day, but yeah, there I, th- I think there's times where, you know, you don't want to go to bed angry, but we're just okay. We're getting we're getting nowhere. We're going to come back back to this. I don't think that's and I think. It do, with teenagers, you just sometimes have to. Keep pursuing. You keep pursuing, and yeah. I would just call it that to me that one of the things I think that goes back to the point with his message is just the humility to come back. Because I mean, it's really nice to sit here and kind of introspectively, you know, when I can tell that I'm not in a good place. But for me, like when I'm not in a good place, you know, I'm usually blind to my sin, and it's Pam actually. Says, or like it hits me like an hour later, like, wow, what was I doing? You know, that's just, <coughs> okay, I did do it in anger. Now I've come back and, you know, Satan wouldn't get it. So I probably could get like like the right stage for a kid that, like, I'm not ready. You know, daddy is, that's, that's a great opportunity to model in a sense of spiritually. And if you have, if you're, if, if a sin tendency is anger and, you're wired that way, and that's how, I mean, I, I just got to come from a, it's a legacy of angry men, tempers. You know, me and my dad are the first Christians in the family working on it. Um, there are plenty of opportunities <laughs> to repent <laughs> and humble ourselves, because anger so, it's so explosive, it's so, it's so quick, and you're sinning before you, and, uh, okay, I got to go back now, and, and uh, so I, th- I think some, some sweetest moments with my kids were repentance times where I was repenting for sinfully responding to their sin and uh, that's opportunity to humble ourselves well there might be more but I'm going to um, sort of risk some, bit, some time to <coughs> rest up his voice because we've got another message coming later Rick thanks for such an excellent wow, it was a pleasure it's fun thank you